Thank you, Josh. Thank you, worship team. And how great to just enter into this time of communicating the Lord's word to just have echoing in our heart his holiness. We really do serve a holy God. And this is uh, called his holy book. And this is the letter, the book that God wrote to the world to communicate what he's doing in the world. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're getting near the end of a series we've been doing called The um, People of Promise. And we've been looking at the covenants in the Bible that God had made to uh, promise to his people what he was going to do. And he joyfully bound himself to do it. So we've been learning about that. And today we're going to continue in in that. And then in a couple weeks, next week, we're going to get ready for Thanksgiving. And if you've been with us, you're kind of like, you know what, we've heard a lot about the Old Testament. Today we're going to hear a lot about the future. What about now? Where do we fit into all this? And that's in two weeks from now. We're going to, we're going to really focus on how do we fit into this big covenant program of God and the promises that he has made. So stick with us. Just a few more weeks to go. And if you remember at the start of this series, I mentioned that uh, if you really want to understand prophecy in the Bible, you need to understand the covenants. And the better you understand the covenants, the better you will understand prophecy as to what God is planning to do in the future. Now, I used an illustration at that time about a puzzle. And I said that a lot of people, when they look at prophecy, it's like looking at a thousand-piece puzzle. Put up that picture. You know, that's what prophecy looks like. That's actually a puzzle. <laughs> that's a thousand-piece puzzle of a puzzle all messed up. And when people look at uh, prophecy and they look through Scripture, often they're feeling like, whoa, man, it just all these different verses and all these things and how do they fit together? We can see it, but how do you do it? Now, when you understand the covenants and they're the root of prophecy, it's like a 16-piece puzzle. You think you can handle that puzzle? Actually, my granddaughter, we had our grandkids last week and she did a puzzle about this big and I was in the other room studying and she came out and got me and you know, she got Papa, come on. So I said, well, just a minute. And then finally she brought me over and she showed me on the floor this puzzle, probably about 15 to 20 pieces that she did. She was so excited and so thrilled about that. And uh, you know what, guys? I believe that prophecy at its roots is really a 16-piece puzzle. And when we understand the covenants and the promises in the covenants, we've got the 16 pieces. Now, I, I couldn't help but do the math just because I got an accounting degree. To turn those 16 pieces into 1,000, each one of those pieces has to be cut into 62 and a half pieces. So if you took that puzzle I just showed, which seems so simple, and then you cut it into each one of those 16 pieces into 62 and a half pieces and mix them all up. That's where we get back to all these prophecies. But like a puzzle, there's a picture that God is painting and what he's going to do in the future. And he's laid it out for us in the covenants that are the 16-piece puzzle that drives those literally hundreds of verses that we read about prophecy. Now, when you came in, I hope you got a little chart that was available. If not, raise your hand. We have some people that'll get those to you. There's a, uh, yeah, raise your hands real high. You're gonna wanna keep this one. You're gonna wanna put it in your Bible. It's going to be, uh, it, on one side we summarize all the covenant promises we've been through in this series, all in one place. These are the 16 pieces of the prophecy puzzle. And I'll show you the back a little bit later in the message as we'll look at that. So take a look at this front side called the Covenant Promises, the foundation to the Bible and the prophecy. We, we, we've been studying this series. And let me remind you, by the way, especially if you're visiting, why are we doing this series? 
My goal is to help people understand this book better so that when you pick it up, you don't get lost and you understand what's going on. Now, there's a goal beyond just understanding the Bible. I'm hoping the better we understand the Bible, the better we understand God, and the more intimate, loving relationship we can develop with him, because as we read the book that he wrote that tells us a story of who he is and what he's doing, we can better understand it and what he's saying. And then as we better understand it, we can be better disciples, because guess what? We can obey what God said rather than something I think he said or misinterpreted him to say, but I can build my life as a disciple off of his word. And so we want to be people who love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And we also want to be people who love our neighbors, ourselves, and obey that all that Jesus taught us. And my hope with this series is to equip you and me to do that better. So right here is a summary of the key points of the messages we've given so far in the series. We saw the Abrahamic covenant that God promised to Abraham, a land forever, innumerable descendants called a seed, or we know as a nation, the nation of Israel, blessings, In his seed, all the nations will be blessed. There's a blessing that God has promised that will come from one of the descendants of Abraham that's going to bless all the nations. And God will be their God forever. And let me go back to innumerable descendants and seed. We know as the nation of Israel, but we know as believers, we also are the seed of Abraham through Christ. But that'll be more in two weeks. We saw the Deuteronomic covenant. This is where God had promised to Israel, in spite of their disobedience, this is what God was going to do. He was going to give them repentance in the future. He was going to bring about a time when he was going to bring to the nation of Israel a repentance to that nation. They're going to be restored to the land. They're going to be regathered from being dispersed throughout the world. The whole nation will be converted Israel's enemies will be judged, and the nation will receive full blessings in the land. Then we saw in the Davidic covenant that God promised to David that from his line, and if he traced back the line of David, you see he's from the line of Judah, and Judah's from the line of Abraham, that from his line would be a king, a forever king, who will rule forever over a forever kingdom. And then we saw in the new covenant that God promised Israel spiritual blessings. They would be a forgiven people. They would have a brand new heart, a heart that wants to obey God and follow him. And they're going to have the Holy Spirit placed inside of that heart to give them the ability and the enablement to walk with God. But also we saw in the new covenant, there's abiding material blessings in the land. We saw in the Deuteronomy covenant, there'll be full blessings. We see in the new covenant, it's gonna abide, it's continue, it'll be like the Garden of Eden. Now, if we're honest right now, and we take a look at Israel in the news, on the map, what's going on, this is not what's going on right now. This has not happened yet. Matter of fact, Israel's still in a place where they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so we learned last week that God is tenaciously faithful and radical in his love for his people. And he is going to be faithful to fulfill his promises with Israel yet. And so what we're going to talk about today is when is that going to happen then? because we see all these promises that God's made. We hear a God who's faithful and who's loving and who's gonna do it, and yet for thousands of years, we still haven't seen these things happen. When are they gonna happen? That's what I wanna show us today. Well, let me say this. We know, as we understand the new covenant, that we as the church today 
are already experiencing some of the new covenant blessings. We're experiencing the forgiveness, the new heart, the Holy Spirit, and the spiritual blessings that God's gonna give to Israel in the future, we're experiencing right now. But we're, we're not, nor is Israel, experiencing those abiding material blessings in the land like they're the Garden of Eden once again. That's yet in the future. Matter of fact, when you speak about the kingdom of God, and we learn from Jesus, and we'll see this this Christmas as we hear the rest of the story, that um, while Jesus came to offer, offer a kingdom to Israel, which they rejected, um, Jesus' spiritual reign has begun already over the church and over his people. Someday in the future, we'll see the literal earthly reign here, but Jesus is reigning as king right now over his people as the head of the church. And so in many ways, these promises, and some of them are, as they often say this, about the kingdom of God already, not yet. And when we look at these promises, some are already taking effect with the church. And simply stated, that's because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. But some are not yet because there's yet a earthly kingdom to come. So the spiritual aspects of these covenants are being fulfilled today with the church, but the material and the other aspects of it as well as the spiritual aspects will be fulfilled yet in the future. So I wanna show us that from the Bible this morning. So turn to Acts, oh, you know what? Before I do that, I forgot to show you a passage that's connected with the puzzle. And that's 1 Peter. And um, what we're going to see here are, you know, I'm, I'm making the puzzle even easier for us today. These are prophecies re regarding Jesus. And there's two main pieces of the puzzle of prophecy when it comes to Jesus. And we see this in 1 Peter 1.10 and 11 as he says this. As to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you make careful search and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And interesting, even the prophets didn't really fully understand what they were writing in these prophecies and they were trying to understand what was going on and what, what, what they were saying and who were they talking about and when was all this going to take place. But what they did do is this, they predicted about two major things about the Christ, his sufferings and the glories that were to follow afterwards. And now I want you to turn to Acts chapter Three, because we'll see that in a little bit more detail. I'm going to look at a lot of passages today. I want you to see from God's word firsthand what he says. This is a passage that uh, deeply has impacted me for years. As I understand prophecy. Acts chapter 3, verse 17, if you're there. Peter was speaking to the Jews in the context. So in verse 17, he says, And now, brethren, speaking to the people of Israel, his Jewish brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, what did he announce by the prophets? That his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. In other words, what he's saying here is that all these prophecies, and we just saw Peter say, when you break down prophecies, what are they talking about? The sufferings of the Christ and the glories to follow. And now when Peter, or I'm sorry, Peter, it's interesting, Peter wrote the other book. No wonder it's so consistent here. Here's Peter speaking in the book of Acts, and he's saying that all these prophecies that talked about Jesus suffering were fulfilled when he came his first time. 
But then look at what he continues in verse 19. Therefore, repent. You know, as I know, the principle that God has set up with Israel, if you disobey me, I'll curse you. If you obey me, I'll bless you. And guess what? If, you re, if you're in disobedience and you repent of that, I'm going to restore you to a place of blessing. So what is Peter doing? He's calling the people of Israel, therefore repent. Why? So that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. You see it? Peter told us in 1 Peter, these prophecies about the sufferings, about the glories to follow. In Jesus' first coming, he fulfilled the prophecies about the suffering. In Jesus' second coming, he's going to fulfill the prophecies about the glories to come, the restoration of all things. That's talking about when God comes and fulfills all these promises that he had made to Israel, these prophecies that were spoken in the Old Testament. You see, it's at the return of Jesus that he sets up his earthly kingdom. Again, there, there's an aspect to the kingdom going on right now, and we'll talk about that in weeks to come. But there's a future earthly kingdom where all these promises will be fulfilled, when it'll be set up. Matthew 19 talks about it. Matter of fact, Jesus talked about it here. And you know what, before I go to Matthew 19, if you're still in Acts, you know, you gotta see those words, heaven must receive until the period of restoration. Jesus ascended back to heaven. He is going to remain there until the period of restoration. And you'll notice he said the verse, so that he may send Jesus to you. In other words, Jesus is going to remain in heaven until he comes back to set up the time of restoration, the period of his glories to follow, the, the regeneration of the kingdom the setting up of all things by God. Matthew 19, again, because Jesus must remain in heaven until then. Then he'll return. And by the way, we know from this passage and others, it's when Israel repents that Jesus will return. We saw in the Deuteronomy Covenant that God's going to bring that about, right? We're going to learn more about that today. But in Matthew 19, listen to what Jesus said. When he said this, and Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, Jesus is saying right here, it's in the regeneration. It's in the period of restoration when he'll be sitting on his glorious throne. Then he says to his disciples, you also shall sit upon the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus is saying there's a time in the future when I return, when I'm going to be upon my throne. One more passage. Revelation 3.21, speaking to the church and promising to those in the church that if they're faithful, this is what they're going to get. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Just like right now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the father, reigning along with the father, in the future, he's saying those that are faithful in the church will be sitting on the throne the same way he is with the Father reigning with him. You know, I love the theology of the throne of God. I don't know if you've ever tried to trace that in scripture before, 
But we know in the Old Testament that the Father and Jesus were both on the throne. We know Jesus was on the throne because in John, he says in Isaiah, when, when Isaiah was looking, he saw Jesus on the throne. And so we know that the Father and the Son were on the throne together in heaven in the Old Testament time. And then when Jesus came to earth, the Father was on the throne as Jesus walked on earth. Well, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, and now we know that he's at the right hand of the throne of God. But when he comes back in the future, we just saw it, and we'll see it again, he's gonna have his own throne right in Jerusalem that he'll be sitting on and ruling throughout the world. But then I love this in eternity. Look at what Revelation 22.3 says. Again, have that up for you to see. This, this is, I love this verse. There will no longer be any curse. And the speaking of the new heaven and the new earth at this time, there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. The Father and the Son will sit together on the throne throughout all eternity. But we're in that part of history right now where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and we're looking forward to the time when he's going to be on his own throne in Jerusalem and then eventually when he and the Father sit together sharing the throne. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Ah, you know what? Now that you're in chapter 9, it'd be real easy for you to get to chapter 11. Because actually it's Romans 9 through 11. You know, here's an interesting thing. We love the book of Romans. And we love the, the, the grace of God that comes through there and the gospel and the, uh, the being a new creature in Christ and the oneness with Christ and joined with him. You know what a lot of people miss? The first three chapters, chapter 1, 2, and 3, and chapters 9, 10, and 11 are all about Israel. And we learn so much from Paul right in the New Testament because he's going to ask the same question. What about Israel? Now, during this whole series, you've been hearing about Israel. We don't, you know, but uh, you're, you're, you're at the point of saying, well, what about the church? We'll talk about that in two weeks. But we're trying to be faithful to what the text says and even because God is doing a new thing through the church with Jesus, Paul asks the same question as you look at chapter 11, verse 11. Watch this very first phrase. I say then, by the way, you really should read chapters 9, 10, and 11, but we don't have time to do all that today. But I say then they did not stumble so as to fall, speaking of Israel. The word fall means to cease. Now, if you've got the New Living Translation here, this is what you read. They did not fall beyond repair if you have the Amplified Bible, it says they didn't fall to spiritual ruin. The total passion translates stumble so as to never get back up again. You see, the whole question here, when you understand what the Greek word to fall means, did they fall so as to cease and never ever again have a part in what God is doing? That's the question that Paul is answering right here. If we're going to be fair to what the text says and what the words mean, that's exactly what the question he's saying is, is God done with Israel? And then he says this, may it never be. May it never be. But by their transgression, by Israel's transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if there, the Jewish, the Jewish people's transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Wait a minute. He's talking about a future time. How much more will their fulfillment be riches for the world? 
Then look down at verse 15. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Again, we see a future. They're rejected right now. But there's a time of fulfillment. There's a time of acceptance that's still coming for Israel. God is not done with them. And then you go on and you, you keep on looking. Verse 16, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, that's Israel, and you Gentiles, being a wild, wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. You see, the church did not come in replacing Israel. The church came in alongside of Israel and partakes along with them in the great program and the covenant and purposes that God has for his people. And then he goes on to verse 24 and says this, for if you Gentiles were cut off from what by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these Jews who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Israel is going to be grafted back into God's program. They've been set aside now. The church is the center of what God is doing right now. And Israel's been set to the side. But they're going to be back in what God is doing. And then he says this in verse 25. I do not want you, brethren, and I don't want my brothers and sisters at Moraine to be uninformed of this mystery. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Partial, not complete. There's a remnant still today. And there's a remnant of Jewish people that have become believers in Jesus Christ. That there's been a partial hardening that has happened to Israel until, remember Acts 3? We saw that Jesus must remain in heaven until he comes back to fulfill all those prophecies in the Old Testament. Well, here we see now that there's a partial hardening that has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And so all Israel will be future tense saved just as it is written. In other words, right now, this is the time Jesus called it the time of the Gentiles. And it's a time when those other than Jews, Gentiles are non-Jews, and God is bringing in the Gentile world into his kingdom. And that's going to continue until the time when that fullness of the Gentiles have come in, and then all Israel will be saved just as it is written. When is that time Israel will be saved? Look at this, verse 26. The deliverer will come from Zion. That's the return of Jesus. And he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. That's the new covenant. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. At the return of Jesus Christ, the new covenant is going to go into effect. We see that all of Israel will be saved. We saw that in the Deuteronomy covenant. We learned that in the new covenant that God's going to convert the nation of Israel. He's going to forgive their sins. We see the part of God's program. And when does all this happen? It's when the deliverer comes back. It's when Jesus returns, the new covenant goes into effect. And the new covenant is like the catalyst covenant of all the covenant program. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We've had all these promises that have been sitting out there really for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. And you know, uh, those of you that understand science better than I do, but I know enough to know that you can have a lot of these chemicals sitting there, they're not reacting together, but then you put in one chemical and they call it a catalyst. 
And when you put in a catalyst, all of a sudden, everything starts popping and everything works together and everything changes. Well, that's what the new covenant is to the entire covenant program and all the promises that God made. When the new covenant goes into effect, everything pops, all the covenant promises happen, and we're learning right here that the new covenant is going to go into effect when Jesus returns And when Jesus returns, all these promises we talked about are going to kick in place. You know, um, let me say, by the way, verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, the Jews are enemies right now for our sake, us Gentiles. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they, Israel, are beloved. Learned about that last week, didn't we? For the sake of the fathers. What do you mean by saying because of the covenant promises that God made with the fathers? He has set his love upon Israel. And praise God through Jesus, he set his love on us. And we're going to see how those two come together in weeks to come. But right now, we see that when Jesus returns is when all of these covenant promises will go into effect. Let me show you one more passage. Then we'll tie it together. Turn to Zechariah chapter 12. This is an amazing passage. It's probably a passage you don't read often. My guess is that, you know, many people are, you know, if you're just a common Christian and faithful and walking with God and reading your Bible, Zechariah is probably not a place you hang out often or study very deeply. But uh, the last three chapters are just amazing when it comes to the return of Jesus and understanding what's going on. Are you there in Zechariah 12 now? Starting in verse 1. Listen to this. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day. That's a key phrase when you're reading the Old Testament. You see it throughout the prophets. In that day. He's talking about that future day when things are going to happen. When you read in that day, he's referring to a time in the future when these things are going to take place. And he says this, It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it up will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. We're starting to see a great war that's going to take place in the future. When all the world is going to gather together against Jerusalem and and, uh, Judah and Israel. And what we see here is the earthly view, and as you read through this, we don't have time to do all these, you're going to get a lot of detail of what that war is going to look like in the future. Now many of us, and you just listen to this, you don't have to turn to it, many of us are familiar with the same story in the book of Revelation when you get near the end. And when we see this, we get the heavenly viewpoint of this war that's going to take place. So Zechariah has given us the earthly view of what's going to take place Uh, at the return of Christ in this war that happens right before. Revelation gives us the heavenly point of view. And listen to what he says in Revelation 16. He says this, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, the unholy trinity that the book of Revelation talks about, three unclean spirits like frogs were coming out of their mouth, for they, are, for they are spirits of demons. Demons will be coming out of the mouth of this unholy trinity in the future. And what do they do? They perform miracles. They're performing signs. That's miracles. They're deceiving the nation through miracles. Which go out to the kings of the whole earth to do what? 
to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. This is the same war we're reading in Zechariah. Now we see that there's demonic forces that are involved gathering all the kings of the world to come together against Jerusalem. And then you read in Revelation 17 as it goes on, the 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings. You've heard about that, the 10 kings come together, there's an antichrist. Well, the 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings who have, re, who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast, that's the antichrist for one hour, a short time. These have one purpose. This is the purpose of those 10 kings to give their power and authority to the beast, to the Antichrist. And these will wage war against the Lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them. Because he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And those who are with him are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. That's you and me. We're going to war. Praise God, Jesus is the general going in front of us and he'll take care of it. And there will be no casualties or injuries on our part. But we know in, Rome, in Revelation 19 that Jesus will descend from heaven on a horse and those in the white linens, that's the church, will be with him. And he says this in verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him and who sat, uh, I'm sorry, to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That's us and the chosen angels be coming back with Jesus. There's a war you and I are going to be a part of. Zechariah chapter 12, 13, and 14 gives us a lot of details from the earthly perspective. Revelation gives us a heavenly perspective. Ultimately, this is not a war against Israel and Jerusalem. This is a war against God. And this is a war against his people. And it says this in verse 20. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, the miracles to convince people that, uh, you know, regarding the Antichrist, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshiped his image, these two, the false prophet and the beast, were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Bottom line, the sword of Jesus' mouth, he's gonna speak the word, <laughs> and they'll be defeated. Now, you're still in Zechariah. That's just, again, that's the heavenly perspective from Revelation. This is a war of Satan against God. Remember, we learned about this, didn't we? Back in Genesis chapter 3, isn't there a battle going on between her seed and Satan? Between Jesus and Satan that we know drives the story of the Bible, and now we're near the end of the Bible, and we see Jesus is going to defeat Satan and his team but now we come back to Zechariah, and let's look at what's going on on earth during this time of the return of Jesus. Look at down in verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Oh man, I'm in Revelation still, I'm sorry. Let me turn to Zechariah. Okay, here I am, sorry. In that day, I'm in verse eight. Again, what's in that day? That's the future time, right? In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day, I will, this is God, set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And this is what God's going to do. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so they will look on me whom they have pierced. Who did they pierce? Jesus. 
at the cross. This is the return of Jesus. Jesus is coming back. He's going to defend Jerusalem. He's going to defend them against all the nations that come against them. And what he's going to do in the midst of it is he's going to pour upon Israel the spirit of grace and supplication. And, they, and they're going to see Jesus, the look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. They will mourn for Jesus as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Then it goes on and names all these families. This is a national repentance of the nation of Israel at the return of Jesus. And then he says at the start of chapter 13, remember I said at the return of Jesus, the repentance comes because we learned in the Deuteronomic covenant, God's gonna grant them repentance. We learned in the new covenant, God's gonna bring about the repentance. And now we see in verse thir uh, chapter 13, verse 1, in that day, that future day, when Jesus returns and defeats all the nations and gives Israel the spirit of repentance, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirits from the land. That's forgiveness, that's cleansing, that's the new covenant. That's what we learn God's gonna do with Israel when Jesus returns. Verse eight, and it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish, but a third will be left. Now we kind of get the picture, Jesus is gonna return from heaven, speak the word, everybody's gonna be saved, no, actually two-thirds of Israel is going to be cut off and judged during that time. And God's going to use that war as part of the way of, of judging them. But one-third of Israel will be left. And you can read about that in this uh, chapter. But verse 9 says, I will bring that third part that's left through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested they will call on my name and I will answer them and I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Remember what we read in uh, Romans eleven twenty six: all Israel will be saved. And we saw that all Israel is going to be saved when the Redeemer comes out of Zion. When Jesus returns, all Israel will be saved. What it is is the one third that is left. After God allows two-thirds of Israel to be judged, the one-third that is left, God is going to save them. And then we see the outcome right here in Zechariah, just like you see in chapter uh, 20 of Revelation. You go, I'm sorry, you go to chapter 14, verse 9, and what's he say? The Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. Over all the earth. The Lord himself, we know that's Jesus, is going to be king over all the earth. You go down to verse 16, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem, because that's where the Lord will reign as king, to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there'll be no reign on them. It's at the return of Jesus that God is going to, boom, the catalyst. Jesus returns. He pours out his grace. Israel repents. And all of these covenants come together. Listen, just listen in Ezekiel. I'm going to read. I love Ezekiel puts a lot of these pieces together. He says this in chapter 37. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations. We read about that in the Deuteronomic Covenant, where they've gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. We learned about that, we see that right here. Part of what God's gonna do. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel, and one king will be king over all of them. The Davidic Covenant. About the king is going to be king, and they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. And they will no longer defile themselves with their idols. That's the new covenant. 
or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God. The Abrahamic God, we see all this coming together at once. And then he goes on and says, my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes of When David is the king, the Davidic covenant, at that time they're gonna walk in his ordinance. We learn that in the new covenant because the Holy Spirit's given to give them that. And they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant. That's the Abrahamic covenant in which your fathers lived and they will live on it. And they and their sons and their sons forever. Genesis 12, 7, he'll give them the land forever. I'm sorry, it's uh, chapter 13, give them the land. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Then down in verse 27, my dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Brothers and sisters, it all comes together at the return of Jesus. All these 16 promises, which we just read a lot of them right here, that are scattered throughout the Bible into further pieces to uh, show us the picture of what God's going to do in the future, all takes place when Jesus returns. And the new covenant kicks into place as the catalyst covenant, and all the pieces come together as God sets up his kingdom here on earth with Jesus as the king. So what do we do? What do we do with this? You know what a lot of people do? They try to take the thousand piece puzzle of prophecy and the thousand pieces of current events and they try to put it all together and figure out who's who and when it's gonna happen. That's what a lot of Christians do. No place in the scripture are we told to do that. Instead, Peter tells us this. Therefore, prepare your mind for action and keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, our hope isn't in the stock market. It isn't in whether your person was elected this week or whether your party's in control. Our hope is based in the return of Jesus and what's yet to come. And then Jesus said this, because nobody knows the hour, nobody knows the time. You probably thought when I said, I'm going to tell you when Jesus is going to return, I was going to tell you the date and time. I have no idea. But like Jesus said there in the parable of the fig tree, he said this, he said, may we not know the day and the exact time. We know the season because we can see the tree turning. So we should not be ignorant that we're in the season as we look at what Scripture says about the return of the Lord. This is what Jesus said, therefore be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the household had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think. A lot of us don't think he's probably coming today. We're probably thinking more about the Bears game. It's an hour when it's gonna be just like this. I'm, I don't expect Jesus, but all of a sudden, he's coming at a time when we don't think he's gonna come. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave? There's the big question. Here Jesus is saying we have no idea when he's coming. We get the idea of the season, but we don't know the date and time. If we did, we would have been ready. But this is who the faithful and wise slave is, whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. In other words, this servant's job was to feed his family at breakfast time, lunch time, and dinner time. And if there was a snack time included in that, that too. This servant's job was to see to it that his family was fed at the proper times and the proper ways. Jesus said this, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. 
let me ask you, do you know what God's will is for you today? And you know, we kind of think it's got to be some big, big, you know, maybe he's telling me I need to go stand on the street corners and scream with a loudspeaker that Jesus is returning because we see that in Scripture. No, God says, what is God's will for you today? Some of you young mothers, God's will for you is way different than it is for some of us who are grandparents. And me as a pastor and what God's will is for me is very different than what his will is for you. What is God's call on your life? Are you doing it? That's what God wants, is faithful servants doing what he has gifted you and made you and called you to do. Are you doing God's will? That's really the question we need to ask ourselves this morning. Not try to put the prophecy puzzle together and figure out when Jesus is coming and who, but be faithful. Have our nose to the grind. God, what is your will for me today? And if you don't have any idea what that is, I suggest two things. Start reading this book. Because as you read this book, you gain more of the mind of Christ. You understand more what God wants us to do. And maybe you need to talk to another believer who's just more mature than you. Say, man, I'm, I'm lost. I don't get this thing. I'd encourage you, brothers and sisters, if we're going to be faithful to the Lord and his return, we got to be about his will. And if you know what it is, do it. Father, I, I just pray that you'd use this message today to make us as a church more ready, us as a people. And Lord, I pray above all that we would, you would give us the grace to fix our hope completely on the grace that is yet to come to us when Jesus returns. It's in his name I pray, amen.